0: This episode is sponsored by 5.11 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15%, not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load. But they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none. And we're not just a firefighter or a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally... I have the Shove-It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station, and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range. You can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorn apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients, formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers, in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast, and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to episode 330 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am extremely excited to welcome on the podcast, Elijah Sacra. Now, Elijah is a veteran of the Marines. He then went down a path to heal several of his own injuries, which led him to the holistic medicine arena. And upon seeing how effective it was on his own wellness and injury rehabilitation, he founded Warrior Wellness Solutions, where he brings holistic practices like foundation training, other movement practices, nutrition... And then parallels that with functional medicine. So a very progressive and fascinating view at how to heal the tactical athlete. Before we get to that interview, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and then leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make us more visible to other people looking for a project like this. And then this is a free library for you, the audience, so I want you to use it personally, use it within your department, and all I ask in return is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so that other people on planet Earth can also benefit from them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Elijah Sacra. Enjoy. All right. Elijah, I want to say firstly, thank you so much. I know that we have known each other from afar for, I think it's five, six years now. Um, And I've wanted to do this conversation for a long, long time. And I'm so glad the universe kind of aligned everything up to to make it happen. So thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast.
1: I appreciate it. Um, Yeah, it's a long time coming. And uh, I always appreciate the opportunity to share some things that have worked for people and myself and just help others uh, lift themselves up and get on the road to Wellville.
0: Absolutely. And I've seen that's what you're doing, especially in the the military population. I can't wait to explore that. Now you and I met at the foundation training certification in
1: Santa Barbara. It was Florida, South Florida. Oh, is that where we met? It was melbourne florida but maybe santa barbara too because i've been to like three or four certifications
0: yeah i think that we were both in florida initially that's why we did that picture again in uh sorry in california initially that's why we did that picture in florida so i think we did two together technically for sure so all right well then i would like to start at the very beginning i'm obviously going to get to foundation training It's a very very important chapter for both of us um but let's start the absolute baseline so where right now are we finding you on planet earth
1: I'm here in Durham, North Carolina, which is a kind of a part of the triangle, as they call it, which is near Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. And it's uh, famous for Research Triangle Park, I would say University of North Carolina, uh, NC State, North Carolina State, and Duke University in Wake Forest. So lots of academia. And I'm, uh, my facility here is near Duke Forest, a nice little area.
0: Very cool. Yeah, I've had a few guests from your area already, so I'm familiar with it. All right. So then where were you actually born?
1: I was born in Newark, Delaware, in the northeast, which is uh, just south of Philadelphia. And uh, it's Delaware Delaware's the small, I believe it's the smallest state in the union next to Rhode Island being the smallest. And uh, it's a small town, a uh, medium-sized town called Wilmington. Uh, the beauty of Delaware is it's got a lot of great beaches and a lot of national wildlife refuges. Uh, refuges and a um, lot of uh, it's got low, uh, no state tax. So a lot of businesses start their uh, or have locations in Wilmington. There,
0: very interesting. All right, so then as far as family dynamic, what did your parents do, and how many siblings?
1: I am um, the oldest of seven children. Really, and, and yeah, it's five boys and two girl, two five boys, two girls. So I'm the kingpin of that little uh, mob, if you will. And my p- parents. Um, both of them grew up in the Wilmington, Delaware area or Newark, Delaware area, which is again, right South of Philadelphia. Um, my parents, I believe met in high school and, uh, by the time they were 21, they had about three kids. So they had kids real early. Uh, my father, uh, my mom stayed home to take care of, uh, and be a homemaker to all seven of us, which was like a huge undertaking. And my father was a small business owner with multiple uh, businesses that he owned. And so I really grew up with an entrepreneurial spirit and uh, just seeing my dad go to work every day and my mom really grinded out every day to help support the ecosystem of our seven kids and just make sure we had a good life.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, I'm one of five, but uh, yeah, the seven, that, that that's a small village.
1: <laughs> yeah, so five still a sense of relatedness, I would say, because a lot of people only have two or one or three.
0: Yeah, these days. Well, it's weird. I wanted, I wanted a large family, and and uh, I ended up with with one little boy and then my stepson as well. So two, which is awesome. But yeah, I kind of always foresaw the same kind of huge family that I came from. But it's funny how you know life will give you what you're supposed to have. And I and I adore my kids, absolutely adore them. But it's uh, you know I, I thought the house would be full of uh, munchkins running around, and you know that was not the plan that was supposed to happen.
1: Wonderful. <laughs> I have uh, two, my stepkids uh, who are 18, they graduate tomorrow, and we're doing a drive-by graduation on their uh, charter school campus because of the whole COVID-19 thing, Um, so they're going to be, I guess, handed a diploma from from inside of the window, maybe, by an administrator, and then we're all meeting in a parking lot, and they're collectively flipping their tassels, so super uh, non-traditional.
0: Yes. Well, let me ask you about that. So you and I have definitely aligned as far as our philosophies on overall health, resilience, prevention. What has been your take on, you know, just what you've seen pros and cons of the last couple months?
1: I I would say jumping out at me as a functional medicine health coach and someone who tries to get to the root cause of problems, whether they're structural or, or physical with, with clients, I would say... I wish people were as obsessed about taking care of their own ecosystem or boosting their immunity or uh, instead of a reactionary approach of what medicine can I take, I would, I would hope, wish they would be focusing on their food and uh, getting sunlight and uh, other modalities that would support their immune system. And uh, I guess, you, you know, you're hearing about this or that being mandated, whether it's vaccines or things of that nature. Um, and it's my thoughts that if they're going to mandate something, why wouldn't they mandate healthy eating and exercise? Um, and I'm, I'm not a one, for, I'm more of a libertarian mindset. So I'm not a one for mandating anything, but I just think um, more focus should be put on prevention overall. And this transcends the COVID-19 mindset or episode that we're in right now. But just think about just the whole hospital system and the healthcare system, you could argue that it is a sick care reactionary system. And so I guess prevention and boosting your immune system on the front end.
0: Yeah. Now, I, I agree with you 100 percent. And it's interesting seeing how many respected members of the military special special operations community that are coming out and saying that like about the middle ground, you know, that yes, we need to be considerate and, you know, isolate sensibly But where do you draw the line as far as, you know, sadly, I I just saw a story yesterday of, you know, police coming in and physically shutting down a gym, (laughs) you know, it's it's like, where's that happy medium where you're allowing fast food to stay open and you're closing down spaces that organically had a six foot radius around each member anyway, if you look at a CrossFit space. So, yeah, I think think there's going to be some very interesting retroactive discussions about where rights were maybe trampled on
1: i mean i would argue that if the abc state-run liquor store here in north carolina is open and considered essential and you could make the argument that alcohol even though a social could be a social lubricant but it's um not exactly uplifting of one's immune system so i would argue that the crossfit gym with six foot space that's organically already there or marked off is a better supporter of the immune system than the uh, liquor store
0: yeah And I think again, I I agree that you don't shut down the liquor stores. If, let's be honest, we have probably more people than we realize who are relying on alcohol that may genuinely experience withdrawals, especially in this period, then I I actually, in some ways, agree with keeping them open. But then you have to obviously then agree to keep the gyms open too. You know, these are outlets that, that people have chosen. Some may be negative, some may be positive. But you, <laughs> to, to keep a liquor store open and then shut ja- down gyms, I think, is, is a travesty. True indeed. Right. Well, then what about positives? So let's, let's pull the, the, the good side of what you've seen from some of this isolation.
1: I think the positives are um, people are being forced to look at what matters um, in terms of what do I actually need to function um, I've had to do that myself. Um, you know, what am I spending money on? Uh, if there's, um, a person that cooks most of my food, but I have a lot of friends that you're know, eating out every day and that's kind of forced them since everything's closed, it's forced them to actually go grocery shopping and they've used the opportunity to learn how to cook. Um, uh, it's brought some friends who were maybe workaholics, um, to uh, better relationships with their significant other and or kids because they're home more. So I, I think it's made people, um, have to turn to actually working on their mindset, working on their health to make sure they don't fall off the wagon while they're maybe at home isolating or, uh, learning how to cook since there isn't a place to go buy that faster, albeit maybe even healthy food from a place like Chipotle or something like that. But, uh, you know they've had to cook and learn learn some tools for the toolbox so that's what i think the positives are
0: yeah i agree i agree 100 percent. i hope i my whole thing is this once we leave this this period this chapter in you know planet earth i hope the lessons that mother nature has jammed down our throats will teach us something and that we don't revert back to how we were before this all started
1: i concur wholeheartedly
0: Right, so then, as going back to your childhood, then, so what about athletics? Were you an athlete when you were school age?
1: Um, I did a lot of martial arts with my brother informally and somewhat formally. Um, we were nerdy kids, we did not have a lot of money. Um, I would say more than athletics, we were very into hunting and fishing, and we literally fed our family. Um, by going deer hunting every year and fishing on a regular basis. And we would keep, a a, uh, freezer, a huge freezer stocked full of meat and fish from hunting and fishing. And, uh, th- so those were kind of my sports. Um, but we did a lot of, uh, wrestling and martial arts. Um, like I said, informal and formal, we would go to the library and check out library books from everything from judo to ninjutsu to aikido to, uh, you know, Sambo, and we would come home with 10 library books and we would prop them open and kind of try to teach ourselves the moves in the basement. And so we were always attempting to explore our our, our, gla- our grappling and striking arts on each other. Uh, and so we jokingly uh, call ourselves, you know, self-taught black belts in our own style in our basement. Um, and I've since come to know that half the stuff we were studying is somewhat worthless now that I've gotten into jujitsu. But uh, at that time, we uh, were trying to live a kind of a samurai ethos in our basement, practicing punching and kicking on each other and grappling.
0: Yeah. That's funny. I had the same same kind of thing. I had all the Tao Jeet Kune Do, Bruce Lee's fighting methods, Danny No Santos butterfly knife, you know, books. Oh, and,
1: yeah, likewise. Yeah. Um.
0: <laughs> so I can see exactly what you're talking about. But my younger brother wouldn't let me hear him. So uh he he was in the cars and engineering and, you know, was a polar opposite of me. We were chalk and cheese. But so yeah, I had to either punch my um Wing Chun dummy that I had no idea how to use or the punch bag that hung in my uh, my bedroom, so that was about it. But <laughs> I can relate.
1: Yeah, we um, my parents were very uh, focused on academics, and so we I didn't end up playing sports in high school. Um, some of my brothers did, but my brother my brother Aaron, who's an 82nd Airborne vet, he was very close to me in size, and it was a year and ten month we were a year and ten months apart, and so it was a very even battle between us. And uh on a daily basis, I think my mother thought we were gonna kill each other in the basement. And we would just have endless battles of, you know, every any modality you can pick from. Um, choking contests, kicking contests, grappling, striking. I think I had a black eye for a year because he kept re blacking my eye and would never let it heal. And so for an entire school year I had a you know black eye and at the you know middle school age, you're getting made fun of for things like that. And, but it was my own brother giving it to me.
0: (laughs) Did you ever have like a no retreat, no surrender moment where all that training paid off at school?
1: Um, that's interesting. You ask that. Um, I was a really small nerdy kind of guy. Um, I came from the big, the big weird family, so to speak. You know, we did hunting, fishing, bird watching, didn't watch a lot of TV Uh, My parents weren't into TV. They wanted us to read books. And so collectively we were made fun of. I didn't get into a ton of fights. Um, Fast forwarding to age 18, I was in a brawl outside of the senior cafeteria and a hand got put on the back of my neck and I turned around and it was the Marine Corps recruiter who was a gunnery sergeant. And so that was the, the pivotal moment that I decided to join the Marine Corps because he kind of looked at me with disdain and said, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, you don't have somewhere better to put your energies. And uh, so that that uh, the altercation resulted in me, me meeting a Marine Corps recruiter, which I ended up joining the Marine Corps at 18.
0: Brilliant. Well, um, speaking of that, then prior to that, what were your career aspirations? Have you thought about the military?
1: Um, My uncle, we didn't really have any family members in the military. I had some uh an uncle who was in the Navy, who was in like, uh, communications. He worked for the NSA also. And he was very into, uh, like, he was a computer engineer of some sort to design like satellite systems. So it didn't seem very, uh, interesting to me from like a romanticizing the military perspective. And I remember it was, this was pre internet era. So we had an encyclopedia Britannica, um, Set and I remember looking through the Encyclopedia Britannica at the different branches of the military, and I decided, well, you know, if you're in the air, Force, the planes can crash. If the, you know, if the, uh, you're in the Navy, you know, you have to learn how to swim really well, and you can't really escape. And I definitely won't join the Marine Corps because they get killed first. And then I remember thinking, I didn't know anything about special forces or anything like that. I just remember I didn't was very attracted to the Army. Um so I looked at it but really didn't think about it that much. Um I actually wanted to be a Wall Street finance guy or an accountant and like a business person. Um and the track that I was on academically in high school uh was a like a business accounting type college prep preparatory uh class uh class track where you were learning accounting and basic finance type things.
0: Right. So then when, when the recruiter grabbed you, tell me about your journey into the military.
1: Oh, it's interesting. Um, my journey in the Marine Corps, he put his hand on my neck and turned around and, you know, I had this gunnery sergeant staring down at me with a rack full of metals. And he just looked at me just like a, kind of like I was a loser for like getting into the scrap in front of the cafeteria. And he said, uh, you know, you don't you have somewhere better to put your energy in. So we ended up meeting with him, um, and I was very into, I guess, guns. I was always into guns and hunting and very into marksmanship. And he kind of sold me on the Marine Corps. My dad brought him home and, and, and inter- interviewed him with the whole family. And uh, we heard like nightmares of uh, different uh, recruiting scenarios where, you know, recruiters lied to recruits and they ended up getting shoved somewhere where they didn't want to be in terms of their job or what have you. Um, but he was a very good guy and ended up going to the Marine Corps, ended up at boot camp about a month after I graduated from high school.
0: Brilliant. That's funny you say that because Pat McNamara, who's a mutual, I would say, I don't know him well enough to call him a friend yet, but, um, yeah, he was on the show. An amazing guy. He told the story of how his dad actually brought a lawyer to his recruiting to make sure he actually was given what he was verbally being told he was given.
1: Oh, uh, that's interesting. I didn't I've never heard that about Pat. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. My, my dad kind of grilled this guy. Um, and I just started as soon as I my I was seventeen at the time, my parents had to sign the paperwork for me to go in and I immediately started training and I didn't know anything about exercise or biomechanics or anything. And I just thought more was better. And so I ended up um running 12 miles on blacktop in really crappy shoes, the first training session that I kind of gave myself. And this is before the recruiters were actually taking recruits under their wing and trying to cultivate physical fitness. And so I gave myself severe shin splints and back pain, you know, and I had that as I was going to boot camp.
0: Yeah. So, so not really setting yourself up success when it came to uh, getting through it then.
1: No. So, uh, yeah, I ended up at boot camp with shin splints and I basically had to repair myself on the fly through kind of stretches that I invented and just pure intuition. Um, and I basically fixed myself in the middle of boot camp uh, by exper- you know, experimenting on different types of stretches and different mobility drills that I kind of came up with myself
0: Right. Well, I heard you in the SoFleet podcast and you mentioned getting some injuries during the Marines. So tell me about those.
1: Yeah. So um, I my first injury was in pugil sticks, which is like the combative things. I don't know if the other branches do it, but in the Marine Corps at that time, they put a football helmet on you and they put you in like a pit and they give you these sticks with padding on either end. Uh, You may have seen that on TV. And they're basically supposed to match you up with someone similar to your size when you're learning this stuff. And so they stuck me in the pit. I was like the smallest next to the smallest guy in the platoon at one hundred and twenty pounds. And they stuck me in the pit with like a two hundred and twenty five pound guy. And so we go running at each other and he spears me in my chest and and like basically hyperextends me over backwards and like completely jacks up my back. To the point where i could barely walk the next day and just you know severe back pain and uh my dad had gone to a chiropractor and i had the audacity to ask the drill instructor uh, if they had a chiropractor on post and could i get an adjustment because to me that was normal and uh, they basically were like flabbergasted that i would even suggest such witchcraft and uh ended up hazing me more in good keeping with uh with the tradition at that time and Made the back injury worse, and I uh, ended up uh, doing some stretches again, and kind of again, fig- kind of figuring out uh, um, how to fix myself to some degree. And the next injury was you were tested on this obstacle course on how to go get over it, and it had rained the night before, and the bars were super sl- the metal monkey bars were super slippery, and I slipped off. And fell and impacted my lumbar spine on kind of this uh railroad tie style log and hurt myself again and I did not pass that particular evolution. And you have, I think they retest you maybe a week later, and you have basically one more chance to pass this thing and other than or else you're recycled or kicked out. I can't quite remember. But I uh I um Passed it by one second on the recycle because I was still injured. And so those initial back injuries stayed with me my entire career. And I would say they were made worse just by what I call Neanderthal style training on one end of archaic training modalities, coupled with my 18 year old mode mentality of, you know, I just can do whatever I want and I'm not going to get hurt
0: yeah well speaking of of injuries, so I know this is on leave during your time in the marines. Tell me about japan
1: um so uh, Japan was at my my final year in the Marine Corps. i had br- actually broken my neck at Camp Lejeune prior to going to Japan. uh do you want me to talk about that? Yes, please yeah, so I was in uh i was a driver for a humvee, and we would do I would be a driver and security for particular things where we're moving things around on the East Coast, and we were doing a training exercise in Camp Lejeune, in an area called Courthouse Bay. And Marines who are listening will know what that is, but it's got kind of like these really bumpy tank trails and landing zones for drop zones for when they drop folks out of uh, airplanes or helicopters, and. The axle broke on the Humvee and the Humvee kind of tipped over and went off an embankment and I ended up hitting my head really hard and crunching my neck on a metal crossbar on a Humvee. And uh, my arms immediately went numb and I had a severe headache and I kind of a vibrating um, feeling in my neck. And so I uh, went to sickbay bay. Um, and got assessed. and they you know, they have all this stuff in my record book. and they didn't really take x-rays. And I had x-rays done later that showed that my c three, four, and five were fractured horizontally. And I probably should have been in a neck brace, and I probably should have been in one of those little halos. But they gave me motrin and water and told me to drive on, and I did because the culture of the Marine Corps at that time was, you know, ignore your numb arms and your numb neck. Maybe you get a few days off, but you're going to continue PTing. Um, I, even with those injuries, prior to those injuries, I was one of the top fitness folks in my unit. And because of my fitness score, they made me a remedial PT instructor. And my physical fitness knowledge at that time was very uh, – what I call Neanderthal fitness. They gave me a Marine Corps correspondence course called physical training for Marines, which was basically hazing people, yelling at them, or driving around with a medic in a Humvee following what we called fat bodies, which were Marines that had gained weight and couldn't pass the fitness test. And what we would do in those days is they would paint with spray paint at X on the back of their t-shirts so that everybody on base knew that they were a non-hacker or a person that couldn't pass the fitness test. And most of these people were from uh, more administrative jobs. And uh, so we would drive around and follow them and kind of haze them. And So I was a trainer at that point, but on a very rudimentary Neanderthal level. So I would not call it holistic. And I wouldn't uh, say that we were really looking at people holistically or uplifting them in any matter. It was more of abusive style fitness and making them embarrassed enough to get in shape again.
0: Right. Now you touched on a very good point. I'm just going to jump in just for a moment with when you said a lot of them that were deconditioned came from more administrative jobs. What is your philosophy on regardless of your job description? If you are a police officer, a firefighter, you know, a Marine, that you should still maintain your element of fitness, especially as it pertains to your longevity.
1: Yeah. So I I think it should be across the board. Uh, Culturally, the Marine Corps supports that more than a lot of other areas. Um, and infantry units, um, there's, you know, some infantry units have have experiments going on right now where they have exercise physiologists installed with the units. Um, a lot of special operations units that I work with currently have human performance instructors or programs that are at the, at the highest levels of like, you know, division one coaches and things of that nature. Um, but your average police department, you know, sheriff's department, uh, fire, de- local fire department and a lot of more administrative, uh, jobs aren't maybe considered, you know, they're barely having enough money to qualify on shooting once a year, let alone have a trainer come in and teach them how to move better. And so, um, I was, uh, I was, my primary job was driving a Humvee around and doing stuff. So it was like a hybrid administrative job. And so I was not from a unit which was considered super high speed um, one of my jobs was a nuclear biological chemical decontamination guy. And so we were doing a lot of training of people, but it wasn't like you were a grunt or an infantry guy living in the field a lot. So in units like mine, um, the attitude would get lax and me being one of the more in shape guys that tried to take it seriously, I was considered an anomaly and they would put me on a pedestal like, oh, you know, Sacra, he's got, you know, he's our standout Marine and all I was doing was uh, getting good numbers like everybody should have been doing, but because nobody else was, they put me on a pedestal and made me a trainer. And so I always disagreed with the approach of, hey, I don't care if you're a Marine that works as a uh, someone in supply or someone in food service. All of you are relevant. All of you could be deployed to a forward area. Um, there are eight. Marines, I think it's, I'm not sure what the ratio is now, but in my time, there were eight Marines who were non-infantry supporting one infantry Marine, but all of these folks deployed for, get forward deployed as part of a unit that could be overrun. They could be uh, called to have a secondary, secondary job as pulling security or being part of a convoy or helping defend a perimeter. So I don't think your attitude should become lax. I think you should um, maintain the mindset. You know, I can speak from a Marine Corps perspective. You should, you know, you should have a warfighter mindset regardless of what job you're in. And the same goes for police or fire. Um, And rising tide lifts all boats. If the mindset of your unit, even if it's a small town sheriff's department, is one of sitting around and only the SWAT team has to be in shape, you're doing the collective energy of your unit department a disservice, so I think everybody should be in shape
0: I couldn't agree more, but thank you for you know telling your perspective on that, so you were walking us through the the journey to japan yeah
1: so i um I continued to p t uh against my own intuition, and it was i had you know I was nineteen twenty maybe at the time. And I was hurting every day in chronic pain, but I didn't want people to know that I was hurting. And so I would continue to PT, um, continue to do very rigorous things, punching heavy bags while damaging myself. Um, And in the Marine Corps, you get made fun of and called a sick bay commando if you take time off. And so I didn't want to be called a sick bay commando. And so I would continue to move on and... I thought more is better and I'm going to outwork these problems and uh, they got progressively worse. And so three years in in the Marine Corps, you can either do two floats, which are going on a boat with the Navy uh, and deploying to, you know, Asia, or you can deploy to like kind of the Mediterranean, or you can go at that time, you can go live in Japan for a year. And in my mind, I thought it would be much cooler to live in Japan for a year and actually experience and live in a culture. And uh, I also wanted to take martial arts into Japan. So it was a somewhat of a selfish request because I really wanted to go me, be, meet Mr. Miyagi and be Karate Kid and kind of fulfill my, fulfill my childhood dreams of checking out those library books and actually do the deed of you know training martial arts in a root area. And so... I got papers signed off to go to Japan um, and I ended up getting stationed in Okinawa and it was a year tour of duty. And I might add um, the only things, unless you were with a special during the time that I served in the main things that were happening were humanitarian missions to Haiti, Somalia, Kosovo. So very few Marines were being deployed and there was a lot of, uh, shining of boots, cleaning of weapons, and a lot of what they call garrison Marine Corps behavior. So a lot of guys were sitting around getting fat for lack of a better description. Um, And so the the non-deployment culture did not support an ecosystem of being on point with physical training or nutrition. Um, So I end up in Japan and uh, it's a year deployment or a year overseas service billet. Um, And during that time, the... Kobe Japan earthquake happened. And so our units deployed in support of that. A lot of of, uh, cleaning up wreckage and handing out blankets and water and things of that nature and supporting like uh, medical units and things. But uh, Japan was amazing. Um, For me, having spent three years at Camp Lejeune prior to that, it was the closest thing to Fun and excitement and traveling the world that the Marine Corps gave me. Um, I was still injured at the time, but I enrolled in a Orthodox Okinawan karate school uh, with a famous Japanese grandmaster who was Grandmaster Fusei Kisei. And uh, long after I left, the Emperor of Japan awarded him some type of citation where they declared him the original lineage of Okinawan karate. So i was super blessed to train with kind of the guy, um, in Okinawan karate, you know, which is, you know, the root of, he was the quintessential guy who was about five foot four with a long white beard and looked like he was out of a Kill Bill movie. So in, in terms of, uh, you know, the, you know, when you if you would walk up and take a look at him, you would say, hey, I want to train with that guy. And I and I did.
0: Brilliant. So what about um, the the attacks? Tell me about how you found yourself there.
1: I had I saved up some leave time while I was in Japan and requested to go to me. Main- uh, so Okinawa is like the Bahamas of Japan. So ma- folks from mainland Japan come there in vacation. So it's, I think it's the same latitude of like the Bahamas or Florida. And there's a lot of scuba diving and some surfing, but I wanted to go to J- Japan proper, which is like Tokyo and, you know, see some of the sites and temples and things like that. And so we requested me and a couple of the Marines were requested leave to go to Japan and we got permission to do so for a few days. And, uh, while, We we took what's called a Space A flight. And so you can basically fly, I think it's for free or 25 bucks. You can fly in a uh, cargo flight to Japan where you're kind of strapped to a wall eating a bag lunch. And there might be tanks or gear in the back. And yeah, we end up in Japan. And unbeknownst to us, I I can't remember. I think it was in 1995, maybe. But unbeknownst to us, as we... There had been a sarin gas attack from a cult leader in Japan, in Tokyo, while we were there. And I don't, you know, it was pre-internet. So like the news reporting was shoddy and things didn't race around social media and you didn't get updates on your iPhone. So we were all sick and stomach ache, diarrhea and vomiting. And then we get back to Japan or get back to Okinawa and we find out that the, where we were in the subway system was part was near where the sarin gas attacks were, uh, by this cult leader. And, uh, I don't remember the exact dates, but you could Google it and it's some crazed cult leader who released sarin in a particular, I think it was in one area of the subway, but because the way Tokyo is connected, it spread to maybe 10 different stations. And so the ironic part about it is as I was serving on my units, Nuclear biological chemical warfare decontamination team and had been to like NBC school, as it's called. But that was my job, but we never looked into what we had been exposed to at all. And we're like, okay, we're fine now. So, you know, who knows what the long term effects were that on my brain, uh, inflammation, digestive health, or neurotransmitters. But, um, we never, you know, we were young and, uh, we didn't really give it a second look but in retrospect we should have been probably tested decontaminated and monitored you know at least for some time afterwards
0: yeah that's that's crazy so that was 1995 i looked it up um i was in japan from 2000 literally like right before midnight of 2001 um and uh when you know when i lived there you realize just just you know how few people actually were killed when you understand what a japanese subway looks like because if people have probably seen the videos they there really are men with white gloves that will cram you onto these subway cars and i think that the death toll was was 12 in the end but it could have been you know hundreds and hundreds had it been at the right station at the right time
1: true indeed yeah so that was that and uh Go went back to Okinawa after that. Okinawa was amazing. Um, I'm still at this time dealing with chronic pain and doing martial arts while in chronic pain and probably in you know, retrospect, doing more damage. I mean, I had a great experience learning things, but in retrospect, I was compressing my spine and causing more, da- more nerve damage, um, because I just didn't know how to uh, self-regulate and monitor my system nor did I know how to eat properly to control imp- inflammation or, or decompress my spine or any of the things we've learned in from the foundation training modality. Well,
0: I just want to stay on to uh, Okinawa just for one moment, because now when you're in the functional medicine and, you know, like preventative health arena, um, Okinawa is, is often held up on a pedestal for having, you know, more people per capita over 100, um, you know, very playful, happy Kind of philosophy amongst the elderly. Um, did you personally witness wellness amongst the native people in Okinawa, or did you even even think to look when you were that young?
1: One hundred percent witnessed us. Uh, I was a, a, a when I first got there. I was a. I remember, you know, you are eighteen. Let me see, eighteen ninety, twenty years old. I am walking down the street, um, and you are looking at women. In my case, and um, so what would happen was. The a woman would turn around and they would have the profile of somebody who maybe was a 20-year-old and you would look at their face and you would realize that they were 60. Or if you were watching men out fishing or surfing or scuba diving, you'd see their profile standing there um, and they'd turn around and they'd look maybe 25 from behind and they'd turn around and you, their face would be Look 60 or 70 years old. And so what I noticed was people's bodies maintained a very lithe, agile and very posture, very agile and lithe uh movement patterns and very good uh hinging and squatting patterns and very good posture overall. And so the only thing you might see is more crow's feet or more aging on the face in terms of uh someone's ecosystem, or maybe their hair had some white streaks in it, but Just from an observational standpoint, walking down the street, you could tell collectively that there was just better posture, better movement patterns. Um, You would routinely see people gardening and squatting for long periods of time, uh, casting out fishing nets with really good throwing and swinging patterns and very good hip hinging as they were dragging in those fishing nets. And I, I since learned, I don't think they had the term blue zone. But Okinawa, um, Crete, and maybe somewhere in South America are part of those uh, centarian studies that you've talked, that you referred to, where there's, I think, more people over 100 that are healthy. And uh, also, I dated at that time a Japanese, an Okinawan national, and older adults are revered and put on a pedestal. And instead of putting them in a nursing home, when you get older, you actually move them into your house because they're regarded as a source of wisdom and a source of knowledge and they're just looked up to and, uh, they're, they're really put on a pedestal. So completely different culturally than here. Um, and the, the I guess the closest example of aging was Grandmaster Fusei Kisei. He had a dojo or a, a martial arts school in town that we would attend, but he would also teach classes on base in the base gym. And uh, they were maybe, let's say, lunchtime classes and evening classes a few times a week. And so at some point, he promoted me to the point where I was able to lead some of the uh, white belts and warm ups and some of the beginner modalities. And he used to invite Marines into the class. And he would would invite him to try try to throw a punch or take him down. And not a single Marine could get this guy on the ground. And he was just an expert in joint locks. Uh, Okinawan karate includes striking, but it also included joint locks and pressure points and some grappling elements. And so he would destroy 18, 19, 20-year-old Marines routinely. And he was definitely close to 80 years old or upper 70s. (laughs) And nobody could land a punch on him. It was a firsthand thing that I saw you know just he would line up 10 marines and they would all come at him and he would just destroy them.
0: <laughs> now what about the diet because again they refer to you know the diet in Okinawa and I, and correct me if i'm wrong but i, I believe it's a lot of uh you know rice and um fish is is at the the source of their diet.
1: Yeah, uh, huge amount of fish, um a huge amount of sea vegetables like seaweed salads were a huge thing. Um huge amount of rice. Um i think the functional medicine world calls it them um, mito diet i'm not sure i might be getting the words wrong but there's a certain dietary theory assigned to that style of eating where it's a lot of sea vegetables and rice and fish and i can't remember the name of it right right off but you saw very little um obesity there and it was very odd if you did see a uh, okinawan national that was obese i've heard that that's changed and i think they're blaming it and maybe i don't know if it's you know what proof there is around this but you know there's a lot of mcdonald all the fast food restaurants we have here in the united states are now here in, in okinawa and so you yo know, american culture is romanticized there and so as a young okinawan it was very cool to wear levi's jeans smoke like lucky strike cigarettes and eat at mcdonald's so it was uh culturally cool to do so and i hope that that didn't trans you know make people more out of shape over time but i'm sure it did
0: yeah well i saw it firsthand when i lived i lived in japan for 15 months in in uh, osaka so i was close to kobe and um it was it was sad because yes all the fast food chains were there and everyone was a smoker to the point where they gave us free membership we were stunt stunt men and stunt women um to the local ymca and there would be like the main gym And an open area, you know, no walls or anything would be a, a small cafe where you could eat after and they would smoke in the cafe. So you're working out and you can smell cigarettes while you're, while you're trying to work out. Um, and you know, I ultimately became passively addicted for a while. I actually smoked for a few months and finally was able to get off it again. But, um, apparently, and I don't know if this is true, but from what I understand, there wasn't a lot of cigarette smoking prior to World War Two, And then, you know, when the, not just blaming America, the Western influence came in, um, cigarettes took off, like you said, when they were romanticizing the movies and everything else that, that, you know, brought those products to them. And they saw a huge decline in health after that.
1: Now that's, a, I've heard the same thing and you were there after me. So I'm, it's uh, interesting that you got a, same, a similar snapshot of that.
0: Yeah. All right. Well then, so you, you, You've come, you know, at the military, you've got all these injuries, you've done a lot of kind of self-experimentation, but not found a a lot of success. So tell me about your road to your own recovery and then how that factored into realizing you could help other people as well.
1: Um, Let me do, yeah, I'll do, let me do that. Let me backtrack just this moment. And like, when I got out of the Marine Corps, they do a final physical and uh, they ask if you have any problems. And in good Marine Corps fashion, I said, no, everything's fine. And so it was clearly not fine, but I did not want to get stuck on medical hold. And I ended up having a surgery at the VA, maybe two weeks after I got out of the Marine Corps, um, for torn abdomen muscles and a hernia and a bunch of other uh, nerve damage from uh, just violent kicking of the heavy bag. And, and so I was immediately, I had all these grandiose plans of what I was going to do after the Marine Corps I ended up getting injured worse after the Marine Corps and get, having that surgery. And it really threw me for a loop for like a year. And so I worked as a tax... I, I went to University of Baltimore for a few... I'd gotten some school in the Marine Corps at night and on the weekends. And I'd gotten an associate's degree in accounting with a concentration in accounting. And uh, I got a job as a like a junior or what they call a staff accountant at Ernst & Young. And not many people know this part of the story because they always associate me with fitness. But I worked in a cubicle at Ernst & Young. I was, there was only one other person in this giant room and we were in a big cubicle farm. It was like the most depressing situation. So I'm fresh out of the Marine Corps, fresh out of surgery. I started eating out of a vending machine uh, my aches and pains started getting worse, and they would come bring me a stack of paperwork to like uh, do accounting stuff for every day. And my eyesight was going bad from like staring at this computer screen, my posture was getting worse. and uh, i w- I felt myself collectively just slipping into complete disarray. And so I had that job for a little bit less than a year. And I went to my bot, I looked in the corner office. And the guy in the corner office who became partner was completely obese, completely inflamed, and basically a miserable human being from my perspective. And I made a decision. I was like, if this is my future, I don't want to be here. Even though it was kind of the dream job of working for the firm uh, that I had chased in the antithesis of blue collar, which is kind of what I was running away from. Um, and so I exited stage left in, uh immediately went to a training in Maryland with a a coach called coach John Philbin. And he was the head coach. He was the strength coach for the Washington Redskins at the time. And he was the first coach for the NFL. Uh, His, his coaching curriculum was called the NSPA, the national strength professionals association. And that was my first certification outside of the Marine Corps. And he was the kind of the first NFL strength coach that was doing things somewhat holistically and trying to do things in an integrative manner. And so he was the first guy to kind of breathe life into my mindset of balance training and trying to do compound movements and trying to be balanced with my approach. He was also the uh, Oscar De La Hoya strength coach and, uh, he was the head strength coach for the Winter Olympics. So Coach John Philbin, which I don't know if a lot of people know about him, but he was kind of a, a rock star in the Olympic training world and in the NFL as kind of a counterculture NFL trainer. And the culture of the NFL at the time was just squat people to death and deadlift people to death instead of working on balance and things like that. Um, so he was my first step in the direction of being more holistic do you want me to talk about kind of the string of events that happened yeah please we all the time in the world um and so right after that I had this training certification so then I embarked on I worked at a gold gym in a completely bodybuilding environment and I was did not look like a bodybuilder at all I was kind of a lean skinny or martial arts build with you know more about movement than getting large muscles. But I was working in a gym where the environment was the opposite of that and very much about how you looked. And so I couldn't get a single client at that gym. And so I would get outside clients and they would come train with me. So my first civilian client ever was a woman who had a broken back, broken neck, MS, Lyme's disease and she was a cancer survivor and she was in an abusive relationship. And so my first civilian client was quite possibly the hardest case I could have possibly been handed uh, as a new trainer, you know, post-military in terms of having to come up with a program or a template for her. Everything hurt her body. Uh, She couldn't work out in the afternoon if it got too hot. Uh, She got dizzy very easily. Um, She was a very timid woman that was apologetic the entire time. And so I consider myself very lucky or blessed that I cut my teeth as a new trainer with the hardest case I could have possibly gotten. And so that really set the stage of learning what to do on an intuitive level for Warrior Wellness Solutions many years later on getting the veteran with the TBI and the PTSD who was on 30 medications, who was also an amputee. And so she created the culture in my brain of stop looking at the book and start to innovate and start to use your brain and come up with principles and concepts based on communicating with a client and biomechanics And look at, instead of looking at what's wrong with her, look at what works and exploit what works and exploit what she can do rather than looking at it as what she can't do. And so that was really a pivotal moment being handed that uh, woman as a client. Uh, She actually was a client that another trainer had given up on and he gave her to me. So here I was in this all bodybuilding kind of steroid environment training this woman And I had two clients at the time, and the other client was a cancer survivor also. And so the next certification that I got was I went to a Perform Better conference. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Perform Better, but Perform Better is a company that sells exercise equipment, but they also have a fitness conference series where they'll bring in experts. So I trained with a uh, holistic kind of strength coach named Juan Carlos Santana who I think, uh, ran a thing called the Institute of Human Performance down in Florida. And he trained a lot of martial artists and a lot of older adults. And then I trained with, uh, Mark Burstagan, who ran a company called Athletes Performance out in Arizona. And, uh, he run, he is kind of, and that's evolved into Exos. Have you ever heard of Exos? So in the early days before Exos, I, uh, trained with Mark Burstagan and, he was another pivotal moment of really looking at integrating the body and then starting to look at nutrition and mindset and inflammation and the health and ecosystem of your client and or athlete. And so uh, obviously athletes performance has gone on to become exos and I have, I've been trained in all the exos certifications and things. And that was a real pivotal moment. And he had a book called core performance, uh, that I really studied in a, uh, in a a deep way at that time. And I basically memorized this book. And at that time, no other trainers in my area were doing things like movement prep or foam rolling. And I was looked at as kind of a heretic for making my clients stretch or use foam rollers or myofascial release. And, I remember being approached in the gym and people were saying, you can't do that with your client. You're not certified to have your client get on the ground with a lacrosse bar, or a foam roller. You don't know what you're doing. Yet, I ended up with a full book of clients because um, as I was training my clients, I was also incrementally repairing my own injuries. And my most of my clients had chronic pain and they trusted me because I was very frank with them that. You know, I might be a month or two ahead of you and the stuff that I'm showing you is stuff that's worked for me and it's worked for other clients. And uh, they trusted me to kind of be a giant experiment of me learning and, and kind of being a serial, trying to keep a serial beginner's mind and learning from all these different practitioners and then implementing with them as I saw fit using good common sense. And so that kind of was the the foundation of where I am now. And then pre-functional medicine, the last thing that I did that was kind of counterculture was I lived in Baltimore City at the time, and there was a yoga studio across the street from where I lived. And I remember seeing people coming in and out of it. And I had a VHS tape of uh, a guy – named Rodney Yee doing yoga. And he was like the only male yoga teacher at the time. And he was kind of in speedos and, uh, long hair with a ponytail with like kind of a Hawaii background in the video. And it was just, and he was with kind of some, uh, really good looking swimsuit model chick. And, uh, I watched it and did like two poses and was like, this is complete craziness. And, you know, I kind of threw the tape in a drawer and never watched it again. But I knew a piece of my workout was missing and I didn't understand breathing and I didn't really understand holistic stretching, if you will, or kind of uh, mobility work. And so I signed up for this yoga teacher training and I remember part of the interview was she, you had to have had some yoga experience and I told her that I had yoga experience And I didn't really have a whole lot. I watched this tape and did a few moves. And I'd maybe been to um, somebody had taught me a few moves out and like a private class. And so I showed up the first night of yoga teacher training and I was like the only guy in a room full of 40 women who had been doing yoga for years. And it was hot yoga. And I totally got my butt kicked and was like, I had a hooded sweatshirt and cargo pants. And I remember weighing like, soaking wet, weighing 50, my clothes were weighed like 50 pounds, it felt like, and just getting my butt kicked. And I'd never employed breath work. And I had never employed multi-dimensional stretching, if you will, if you want to call yoga that in any capacity on this level, and it really kicked my butt. And so as far as I know, I was the first Marine to become a yoga teacher. There might be somebody else out there, but I don't know who they are. But I remember keeping it a secret, because at that time, if you were a male and a Marine or anybody in my sphere, you would have been completely made fun of. And so I kind of kept it close to the vest for a while that I was doing these holistic things. And so that's kind of my movement journey prior to discovering foundation training, which was another pivotal jump. And then prior to discovering uh functional medicine and integrative health. So that's kind of, a one stopping point there,
0: right there. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, the first stopping point is Rodney Yee, because I have actually just got back into supplementing my foundation training with yoga, and Rodney's DVDs are what I've been doing for. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, and, and I've used them probably. God, it's got to be close to ten years now. That's crazy. And on and off, very, very on and off, which is why I'm back on again because everything's getting stiff and you know, not working the way it's supposed to. But I, it, I completely, you know. Can visualise what you're talking about because he, there's I, I, something about his voice that I actually like. He he is that kind of, if you were going to do a Disney yoga teacher, Rodney Yee is is it. However, he does wear tiny pants, right? <laughs> so you're trying to follow this guy, and his little Winky is you know moving all right. over the place, and you're like, I'm kind of torn here. You're a good teacher, but you know maybe maybe some sort of extra underwear might be <laughs> appropriate right. while you're teaching.
1: In my 22 or three-year-old Marine Corps, post-Marine Corps brain, I was like, I'm just not going to do this, and I'm not going to get caught with this tape in my house.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've actually, a friend of mine interviewed him, and uh, I'm hoping to interview him. I'd love to get him on because, I I mean, he has affected so many people when it comes to yoga, especially men who are closet yogis.
1: (laughs) Uh, Right, 100%, because, uh, you know, he needs to know that his work, you know, albeit, I only did two of his poses before I quit, but he was the fuel that at least got me into that teacher training for sure. Like, Hey, another male is okay with doing this. And he was, you know, an outlier at that time where everybody was just, you know, excuse the expression, hippie tree hugger, grass skirt wearing folks from maybe Southern California, at least in my perspective, um, were the only people that did yoga.
0: Yeah. And it's and it's so funny when it comes to organic food, when it comes to yoga. You're right. Back in you know, turn of the millennia, you know, and prior, you're like, oh, what kind of pussy does yoga? So I'm just gonna sit here and get fat and take my, you know, diabetes pills. <laughs> you know, I mean when you look at it, it was such insanity.
1: Yeah, your ego or my ego, I'll speak for myself, would not allow me to do certain things because I perceived them as unmarine-like or not something a self-respecting tough guy would do, or I can't let anybody know that I'm exploring this because eating more greens isn't cool or, you know, little things like that. Um, and then moving forward, you know, I became this yoga teacher and then a buddy of mine and do you want me to keep going with this whole storyline, or?
0: Yeah, no, for carry on. Like I said, the beautiful thing um, about this podcast is, is, it goes, you know, as long as it goes. So, yeah, absolutely.
1: The uh, I don't know what percentage, honestly, to assign to each certification, but I will say each certification and each person that I train with, uh, I got a piece of truth from them and a percentage better from each of them, and I also they also had some things that maybe didn't agree with my body. So I sometimes did two steps forward, one step back. And with the yoga, I would stretch too hard and be too, too dramatic in my yoga poses and would end up injuring myself. And then I would dial the yoga back and think that, Hey, yoga sucks and I shouldn't do yoga anymore. But the reality was that I was pushing the envelope and trying to do ego based yoga versus listening to my body. Um, The next phases uh, of evolution was training with uh, the functional movement screen, folks. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. Gray Cook. Yeah. He's actually was a sponsor and supporter of our nonprofit work. And uh, he helped get some of our team into his certifications. And it was there that I met uh, Dr. Mark Chang. I don't know if he's been on your podcast, but he's a really good candidate. Um, he's one of, uh, he, I train with him personally and he, he's worked with with me through the functional movement screen system and, uh, learned some, uh, Chinese medicine stuff from him. And he's helped me out personally with some of my neck pain. And he's also very good. He's also an instructor for strong first and kettlebell training. And, uh, he runs a company called K3 combative. So he's a really good person to follow. And he's been one of, uh, People I've stayed with in terms of following and getting information from for years to this day. Um, moving past that, um, I, I had a buddy of mine named Alvaro Mata, who was, uh, yeah, I have to describe him. He's a 130 pound uh, infantry guy that I served with at the Camp Lejeune. He was a radio man and a saw gunner, which is a like, like kind of a light automatic weapon gunner, but he, due to his body type, he should not have been doing, carrying the radio or carrying this weapon because he was just so small, but they basically loaded up his system. And so this guy, uh, grew up with a mom who taught him yoga and meditation. And so he would use yoga poses to take pressure off of his spine while on deployment, uh, in Gulf War One and to Somalia to help stretch his spine out because he was carrying around this huge, heavy radio called a Prick 77. And he was also carrying around this saw gun or this saw light machine gun with a lot of ammo. So he was a Marine who was infantry Marine who was doing yoga and getting made fun of for it. And so years later, we stayed connected and we secretly admitted to each other that we were doing yoga and uh, kind of getting into nutrition because he had been he had been in Bahrain during desert storm and a scud missile landed in his birthing area and all of the alarms went off for gas. Yet the records say that he was not gassed, but his, he had a lot of neurological issues, all of his hair fell out and he's got a lot of, uh, not to get into his personal story too much, but he definitely was gassed for sure. And, uh, had a lot of gut health issues and, uh, deployment based issues with his ecosystem. So me and my buddy were basically secretly repairing ourselves through yoga and healthy eating to a degree. And I called him up one day and I said, Hey, what if we started helping out other veterans? And, uh, we decided to start the nonprofit, um, at that time, It was called Semper Fit, and the Marine Corps, unbeknownst to us, had trademarked. I owned the trademark for the name Semper Fit, but the Marine Corps had used that terminology in 1990, so the Pentagon actually called me and asked for their trademark back, and I had to give it to them, and I had to change our name after we were already uh, in motion, And so we evolved into a nonprofit called Semper Fidelis Health and Wellness, which is, you know, the moniker of the Marine Corps, Always Faithful. And we kind of got our start helping Marines. And then it evolved into helping everybody. And then we morphed into Warrior Wellness Solutions. So we were not always called Warrior Wellness Solutions. Um, So that's what we've kind of evolved into. Um, In our early days, we started with – one client who is a double amputee in Baltimore, who is an army guy. And my first exposure to um, holistic nutrition was at a school called the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. And it was there that I met my partner in life, Clarissa Cusin, who is one of the co-founders of our nonprofit. She was a uh, yoga teacher, meditation teacher, health coach, and also a chef of Whole Foods and Holistic Foods. And so we met at nutrition school in New York City. And her, Alvaro, and I were kind of the founding members of Warrior Wellness Solutions. And we started with this amputee, and we basically started working with him one-on-one. And and he had gained, uh, to keep things sterile and private, I'm not going to give out any names, but he had gained weight. To the point where he could not fit inside of his prosthetics anymore. So by working, we went to his home, taught him how to train himself with bands and body weight, yoga and stretching and deep breathing exercises for his mindset and mental state. And he ended up losing 40 pounds in being able to get back in his prosthetics and being able to get back on his uh, uh, recumbent bike, and he g- did the Army 10-miler and the Marine Corps Marathon as a result of training with us and getting back into the fight for where he was with his new body, um, which was a really cool experience. So that was kind of our first nonprofit success story. That's
0: incredible. Absolutely incredible. I want to go back to something you said, though, because it's it's hilarious. So. When you and your your partner, he's the one who'd been gassed by the the scud missile, yeah. That you secretly confided in each other. I could just envision this this secret that, that you were going to talk to him and you know, you told him, Hey, you know, I I'm I'm actually gay and him going, Oh thank goodness. I thought you were gonna say you did yoga.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh it was literally I, I'm trying to remember him. He's like I was like, Hey Alvaro. I I got something to tell you. And he's like, what? And I was like, I'm in yoga teacher training. I even lowered my voice on the phone. Like it was a secret. And, uh, he's like, oh, well that's interesting. Cause I've been doing yoga for like six months and I'm getting a lot out of it. And I'm like, no way. And I'm like, do we, and then I said, do we tell anybody this? And he's like, oh, hell no. There's no way we tell anybody this um this feels so good
0: like, to get it off my chest i yeah, feel yeah, amazing he's
1: <laughs> and so he's like they're not gonna be able to handle this and they're gonna not and we had just kind of started the nonprofit on paper so we had this nonprofit that we really didn't have a client yet we just had an idea and we had our facebook page and we we're putting out like basic information on how to eat right and move better and we're like we're not gonna post anything about yoga because if we do no self-respecting grunt From the marine corps which is what we were focused on helping at the time will follow our page and they will just won't take us seriously and so like for six months we agreed to not talk about it and it was like our secret and then finally he found an article on the internet about bodhidharma which was a warrior monk who came from india and went to the shaolin monks and meditated, he was like a fighting monk. And he actually sat, The as legend has it, he like meditated on a rock or something for nine years straight, which who knows if that's true or not, but he was a fighting monk. And it was this story about how, I guess yoga and mindfulness is actually a warrior, part of the warrior path. And so our first post on our social media was this article about Bodhidharma And how doing yoga is actually uh, something you should do as a warrior in order to maintain your edge and your flexibility and your mindset. And so until we kind of codified it or packaged it in a way that we could frame it up in a warrior ethos, we refused to post anything about it or share it publicly.
0: That's funny. So it went for uh, marine for yoga protests and you know and parades yeah. and things. <laughs> yeah, it's just so I mean it's just I'm I'm laughing at it because it's so ridiculous when you talk about it now. The same way as it's so ridiculous to think that you'll be in a pussy for saying that the horrific things that we see as military members and first responders Bother us? Of course it bothers you. You're not supposed to see that tragedy. You're not supposed to go for years and years and years not sleeping every third day. You know these are very unnatural human things that we do. But this, and I always kind of refer to you know, the, the Hollywood myths, the bullshit that we were raised on, the John Rambo's of the world, um, really caused way more problems than people realize. You know, and and now we're we're slowly pulling down this facade, this ridiculous prejudice against the very things that are making us healthier humans yoga you know organic food um you know talking to each other <laughs> communication tribes you know so I, I just want to kind of underline that because it is ridiculous that, that you had to be in the closet about doing a movement practice that made you a better marine
1: oh 100 and i have this uh in the marine corps we're issued this green logbook that kind of every marine has one of these things and you like kind of journal in it or you might write your workouts in or, or some type of knowledge that one of your uh, higher ups might uh, give to you. So I have this log book and it's here on my bookshelf now. And I reread, I found it in like a duffel bag in my mom's attic and I have quotes in it like pain is weakness, leaving the body or I'll sleep when I'm dead or, you know, a whole string of what I felt were, you know, ethos pieces that I lived by, which really don't serve me at all at this point. <laughs> But it's uh funny, but you know these were things that I wrote in my log book that I was going to adhere to, and you know I was uh, never going to do anything that was considered soft or stretchy, and only do hard things.
0: Yeah, well, well, so taking a parallel as a firefighter paramedic, um, you know, for the last I spent fourteen years actually doing it, and then that was like fifteen plus years ago now, um, total. We as first responders, get to see, again, the facade that is disease management medicine. I'm not going to say modern medicine. There's some incredible, you know, surgeries and, and um, um, <clears throat> you know, emergency medicine that's absolutely incredible. However, we also see that those sack full of meds that people are given for their diabetes and cholesterol and, and you know, um, their arrhythmias and, you know, all these other things that are a side effect from obesity are complete fiction they're fable that those are going to make you healthier they're not it's a band-aid for a problem as you as you mentioned earlier so tell me about your entry into functional medicine and actually understanding how if you address the body as a whole and understand prevention that you nearly never will find yourself needing to lower your blood pressure or any of the other markers that we worry about
1: Sure. I think um, I had been to the Institute of Integrative Nutrition, which kind of taught me how to be a health coach. Um, And they taught a lot of different dietary theories, and they weren't calling it functional medicine at the time, but it was more like they were using the word integrative or holistic. And so I think my first exposure to functional medicine, as I recall it, was like a YouTube video with Dr. Mark Hyman from the Cleveland Clinic uh, where he was talking about his experience of being a medical doctor. And I think he was in China and he was in a town where he was like um, experiencing air pollution and things just started to go wrong in his own body. And he, his different systems started shutting down and he was on all these pills or they were trying to give him all these pills. I can't remember which, but he, rem- I remember him saying, this can't be right. You know, depression isn't a... Depression pill deficiency. What in my life am I doing that's making me depressed? Or my high blood pressure isn't a deficiency in high blood pressure medicine. What might might, might be I eating? You know, what might I be eating or doing in my life that's creating that high blood pressure? in this, and I think there was a TED talk or or some other talk. I can't remember which, but he kind of went down the line of each lifestyle thing from sleep to the air that you breathe, to the food that you eat, to your movement practices, to your environmental toxins. And he laid out the case that most of the chronic preventable diseases that people have, that most of the money is spent on in hospitals and most of the drug money from the pharmaceutical companies are spent on, can be fixed by changing your environment addressing your sleep addressing your nutrition and movement practices in really empowering your own ecosystem to not have to need these things and so instead of a band-aid reactionary approach you're trying to get to the root cause and repair yourself and teach yourself how to fish or learn how to fish so that you don't even end up with these downstream problems Um, and he really put the lens on, let's get to the root of this versus treating symptoms.
0: Yeah. And again, that's what we see. So, you know, sadly, many of the men and women that end up, you know, flat on their back with a tube down their throat as we're pounding on their chest are morbidly obese, you know, again, an absolute huge bag full of meds. So clearly somewhere along the line, and I'm not just putting the blame on the doctors, it's the system you know that that these people have been led to believe that this is where the money and time needs to go on on the prescriptions on the medication and you know as we are all aware there's very very few members of the medical community that either will or have the support to assign people nutritionists assign them you know to a gym to a wellness coach and i think that even sometimes you see the pre- preventative world almost being pushed against the same way as I'm seeing it with CBD at the moment. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a pushback by the FDA to try and suppress CBD, which I think is an incredible innovation in, you know, plant medicine. Um, and, and it's so sad because I see these, these men and women that are, you know, 50, you know, they could have lived another 30 plus years at least, and they were given all the wrong information, They made some drug companies very, very wealthy with these meds that they were buying uh, month after month, and it didn't help, and they died. And it's so, so infuriating to see over and over again that these people were being given the wrong information. Of course, some of the right information exists, but you have to search for it. And an environment, I think, at the moment is set up for people to fail, not thrive.
1: 100%. Uh, for me personally, you know, I'm I'm still a work in progress myself. A lot of people look at the look at me on paper or they see me in whatever article or video or you know hear about our nonprofit and they think, oh, Elijah's this, you know, picture of health and he just lives this streamlined life. And I still have to do a ton of self-maintenance to maintain my ecosystem. I still have to address inflammation and other things. And I would say that my biggest teacher is pain. Is a good motivator. Um, I wouldn't know anything that I know if I wouldn't have had the problems that I have. And uh, the clients that I that come to our nonprofit, and I have some civilian clients also, they come to me at the end of their line after having tried, you know, sometimes ten to twenty different modalities or pills or drugs. And it is extremely common to have the veterans we work with on at least ten to twenty medications when they first come to us. And, uh, you know, I'm on a, I sit on a board at the VA called the Health Services Research Board, um, and it is trying it's a board filled with veterans that is trying to shift the VA culture to a whole health culture instead of researching and employing modalities that are not addressing the root cause of things and doing endless studies that are just trying to see if drugs work, it's trying to redirect things to employ services where you could actually go into the VA and get a cooking class. You could go into the VA and take a movement class instead of going into the VA and picking up a prescription.
0: Yeah, and I think that's exactly what we need. And I've seen that myself. And you talk about the, the self-experimentation because of your own injuries. Well, that's what took us both to that foundation training class and i going get to it in a moment. But you're absolutely right. I think anyone that masquerades as having all the answers is full of shit because all of us are a work in progress but that's why some of us have been able to reclaim our health especially as we get older is because it does take work and that's i think the the problem is that it's easy for for someone to scribble on a prescription pad and say there's a solution the reality is it's gonna suck like right now i'm I'm addressing some imbalances in my body and it's absolutely two steps forward one step back my knees will feel great and then both have had meniscus surgeries a few years ago. um, And I realized that when I wanted my hips were totally inflexible when I started doing martial arts again. And so as I'm repairing it, as I'm getting my mobility back in these different planes that I never had to when I did CrossFit, um, it sucks. Things hurt because things that have been in one position are now being forced to start going back to the natural anatomical position. And it's miserable some days, but that's just it. If you've done damage, if you're not Twelve years old, you're gonna have some work to do, but the the time that you invest and spend the money you invest in in clean food and and movement is going to pay dividends to your longevity
1: hundred percent i've been uh we our nonprofit is part of a consortium called operation restore uh it, it's part of the soft health initiatives uh, with another nonprofit called task force dagger. Um, It's run by uh, Master Sergeant Jeff D'Arty, and he has a wonderful story. He would also be a good candidate for this podcast, but he has a wonderful story where he really digs into the operational environment on how many things the military and law enforcement uh, operators are being bombarded with. Um, Kirk Parsley, Doc Parsley, serves on the same board that I do with the Soft Health Initiatives, and so I'm surrounded by these people who are geniuses in their own right in certain modalities, like his is sleep. It's all... I encourage anybody that's listening to uh, really follow the other people that have been on your podcast because they're a wealth of information. Uh, Doc Parsley is somebody I follow personally. I uh, follow a lot of his sleep instructions and modalities, and uh, it's super important to to, uh, leverage these podcasts and social media to really use them as a learning tool, especially during this time when maybe people aren't working as much or they're quarantined.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of quarantine, one thing that I think this has exasperated my journey and made it a little bit worse is the amount of sitting. You know, no matter how, how optimistic we want to be, there is just less movement at the moment because we're restricted where we can go. You know, so um, I think we're coming out of that now in Florida, which is fantastic to see. Um, but the, the, the journey to foundation training. So for myself, after, you know, a decade of being a firefighter, I had an event where I picked up a very, light individual in a, in a medical call and ended up tearing my back and it took me to a, a chiropractor which i had to pay out of pocket no preventive care was was provided from from the workman's comp side but then he introduced me to eric's 12 minute video and then that took me then to recovering going to my department convincing them to send me to go be an instructor and i came back and taught every single person in my fire department to try and get some out of pain and then hopefully prevent some ever getting into pain in the first place. So tell me about your journey into foundation training and what your experience was like.
1: So we were teaching and offering free yoga for veterans in a few cities on the East Coast. Um, And I don't remember what year this was, but I was doing it uh, in Baltimore. Somebody else was doing it in Virginia. And Peter Baverso, one of our fellow foundation training instructors, was teaching a free yoga class to veterans and active duty on Quantico Marine Corps base underneath of our banner of our nonprofit. So he either emails me or calls me up and says, Hey, do you mind if I include some foundation training in the yoga class? Because I think it'd be extremely beneficial. And I thought I, at that point I, I was maybe I'd gotten on my high horse because I had a bunch of different certifications, but I thought I had knew of every modality that was out there And I was like, what is foundation training? I've never heard of that. And uh, he's like, well, it really helped my back out. And I was like, well, you know, can you send me some information about it? He's like, yeah, I'm going to send you a couple videos and, uh, you know, via Google Drive or something and you can check it out and let me know what you think. And if you think it's okay, we can include it in the class. So I think I did two or three of the poses. It was maybe like a founder, a lunge decompression and a forward fold. And it immediately upgraded my back and neck pain that I was still had at that time. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I immediately called him out up and said, uh, you know, please, please integrate this into the class. This is awesome. And and where is this guy? And so I Google, I'm in Durham at the time and I Google, you know, where the next certification is and it's in Atlanta, which is like a few hours South of us. And it's like a month later. From me doing my first digital pose. And uh, I apply and, and go to the course, and I drive down to Atlanta and I go all in. And so I don't remember what year that was, but it was a while ago for sure. But I, uh, you know, basically the first certification I found, I went all in, and, and it was transformational because it was so different than anything I had ever been taught. I had never been taught the principles of decompression breathing to really take pressure off the rib cage. I didn't understand that uh, just shoving my shoulder blades together wasn't getting into good posture, that you actually have to lift and create space from the pelvis and the bottom of the rib cage with measuring sticks and decompress your spine and lengthen your neck. And so the little nuances that Dr. Goodman and his team gave to me did a great job and provided a great tool to take pressure off my cervical spine and my lumbar spine. And, uh, you know, I left that certification and did it too, too hard. I would say I applied Marine Corps war fighting mentality to foundation training. And I ended up like irritating my body because I didn't listen to what they told me. And I would encourage anybody that's doing the 12 minute video or any of the things you see online really listen to your body and just do long inhales and exhales and and try to dial into what you're feeling and don't push the envelope too hard and uh, you know stop when your body tells you to stop because I didn't and uh, I had to dial it back a notch and crawl walk run my way into it I would say
0: yeah and I think that's just it even some of the top like strength of conditioning coaches have had on now we always look at the the tip you know, the absolute, um, yeah, know, the people that are standing on the top of the mountain. And we're like, oh, that's how I'm supposed to do it, like them. You know, the, the Eddie Halls and the strongman, all that. And so, well, the problem is that these people have devoted everything just to attain that one trophy, that one lift, that one fight, whatever their goal is. But that's not wellness. That's not longevity. That's competition. And I think that the more of these coaches I talk to, the more I realize that there's that kind of... 80 ish percent where the population as a whole can get extremely strong extremely fit extremely mobile but without being at that point where you may or may not break and i think that applies to to lifting and it also applies with you know mobility and foundation training and yoga where it's not supposed to hurt you know it's not a van damme movie you're not having a little asian man ripping your two legs apart from underneath a tree you know just you know you if if your body's telling you it hurts there's a reason for that
1: I've been, uh, I've done some work with Pat McNamara in the combat strength training program, who I know you know, but uh, his uh, mindset really resonates with me. And I've taken a piece of, you know, this is his quote, not my quote, but I think he says it like this, like when you're working out, you shouldn't be working out so hard that if you walk into the parking lot and somebody attacks you, you should be be able to intelligently defend yourself. And so this whole notion of you, you hazing yourself in the gym so much that you can't complete the tasks for the rest of your day is not a good thing. You should work out in a, with a mind, especially if you're, uh, you know, belong to a y- operational unit or a, you're an active duty firefighter or a police officer. Your workouts shouldn't be so difficult that you can't intelligently defend yourself, make the arrest, go into that fire call, or uh, kick that door in. Um, and then he also uses another term of. Everything he does, Pat talks about doing things through the lens of self preservation and longevity. So, my mindset now is what am I going to feel like when I'm 90? Not how can I, you know, I do competitive, some competitive jujitsu, but I'm careful with that. But I I really look at things through the lens of, you know, is what I'm doing right now going to make me feel good when I'm 90? And try to get out of that mindset of I'm going to be awesome this summer. Or I'm going to have a five-year run of being a champion, and then I'm going to feel like crap for the rest of my life. I'm just not willing to do that.
0: Yeah, I just had um, Matt Wenning, one of the, the top powerlifters, and he does a lot of work with firefighters as well. And you know, one of his things he talks about is train like you're 40 when you're 20. And his whole whole thing is, you know, you're not trying to PR every single lift. You know, focus on your quality of movement. Trust the process that this is going to be. A, you know five ten year journey to wherever you want to get but if you're throwing away uh, longevity for the pursuit of some little shiny piece of metal um you might win you might get there congratulations but if you break yourself you know your your journey after that is probably not gonna outweigh whatever it was that you achieved
1: yeah, some of us learn these lessons sooner than others. Like I jokingly say I age myself to 50 at 21 in the Marine Corps. And so I actually feel the youngest I felt in a long time. And a big piece of that is from functional medicine. And I actually just got stem cell treatment on my body from uh, Doceri Clinics out in Park City, Utah with Dr. Henry Adelson. He, if anyone's listening in chronic pain beyond foundation training as an adjunct um he's got a movie documentary called the stem cell solution and it's a great uh lens into the science of stem cells and how that can help repair your ecosystem and create the space for things like foundation training and nutrition to work in the body
0: but you know i've wanted to do a stem cell episode i heard joe rogan um oh my goodness what's his name mel gibson brought a guy who has a a uh clinic i think it's in Colombia because you know there's there's areas of stem cells you can't do and i've been wanting to maybe even meet, reach out to him but yeah i mean if it's in america it's a lot more accessible
1: yeah dr henry adelson in park city utah has more treatments under his belt than any other doc here in the united states and everything he does it, unlike the one in panama is legal here in the united states and i don't want to go too far into who he uh services but he has uh, tier one operators that use his service, tier one operator units use his services to repair guys and get them back into the fight on the battlefield. So if you were going to have someone on your podcast, he, uh, would be the person to have, and I can certainly connect you if you're interested. But, um, I got treated by him as part of a tithing program, uh, that he offers, uh, veterans with, uh, service connected injuries. And I'm extremely grateful for that. And, Stem cells are amazing. Um, They don't, I I don't want to say they don't work, but if you're already healthy and you're already doing foundation training and you're already eating correctly, um, it provides the ecosystem for them to actually work on your body. So anyone out there that's not eating correctly and, you know, severely overweight that thinks there's this magic bullet of, you know, testosterone, stem cells, or some magic thing that's going to help you, I would encourage you to, Really go to the root of shifting diet, sleep, and lifestyle modalities before you even start exploring something on a higher level.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's great advice. I mean, for a start, you might have great success with some of those and not even need the stem cells. So that's the thing. You want to work on everything that you can in your control. And then if there's still an issue, obviously then, you know, look to see if there's any other holistic alternatives that can help too.
1: I, um, I have done... Uh, two level one foundation training courses and a level two foundation training course. And the reason why I did two level ones, it's very important for me to keep a beginner's mindset and learn how to cue and learn how to teach better, be a better teacher. And I routinely will study basic stuff repeatedly to get as good as I could possibly be at my craft as, as, at explaining it. Uh, If you only study complicated high level stuff, you never become good at explaining things to the new person who's injured. And so I encourage other trainers or other unit uh, human performance people, you know, making sure you dial in the fundamentals and not get focused on sexy Instagram worthy exercises that look cool. But ultimately, those are not the exercises that are repairing the guys that are stuck in the trenches, that are, you know, getting hooked on the pain pills. You need to learn the non-sexy fundamentals to really walk people forward. Uh, and uh, I would say fund it, foundation training as a whole has single-handedly been the best movement modality that has helped me and our organization get more veterans and active duty guys out of pain. Um I teach it remotely to guys that are deployed in Syria and Afghanistan. And it's an easy body weight system that you can learn that has a streaming service. So you don't need weights. I mean, weights would be great if you have them. But if you're forward deployed and you don't have any tools other than your body, foundation training is key, in my opinion.
0: Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Instagram. So I need to take down the video of myself standing on one a Swiss ball with one leg juggling two kittens blindfolded then?
1: Uh, with that said... Sexy Instagram posts, whether it be exercise or something else, can garner attention that can be used as a tool <laughs> to, uh, from a guerrilla marketing perspective. If you're not perceived as, for example, I do competitive jujitsu and I competed at Worlds out in Vegas last year. So other people that do jujitsu, are going to listen to me a little bit more about exercise because they know that I've competed at the highest level versus trying to take exercise um, advice from somebody that doesn't even compete. So your sexy Instagram post of standing one legged on a Swiss ball blindfolded, if that gets people into following you, and then that provides an entry point for teaching them a foundation training pose, I say that that's a good tool.
0: Yeah, no kids were harmed in the in the, yeah, the filming no, uh, of that.
1: Um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, branding is important. Um, you know, Warrior Wellness Solutions. Uh, if we we have to put stuff on our Facebook feed that resonates with our population, and if it gets too touchy feely, we will lose people. So we have to keep a good balance of hey. Here's stuff for jujitsu fighters who are veterans. Here's more holistic things. Uh, here's our chaplain posting about spiritual wellness and fitness. So we try to keep it very well blended To provide access points for people for wherever they are, so we can meet them where they are.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that buy-in's important, especially for our population. And you just come in—I joke about this a lot. But you know, if you're bright orange, covered in spandex, and you you start like high-fiving all these firefighters, telling them we're going to get fit today, you know, and skipping around the room, you're probably not going to get much buy-in.
1: We we call that cultural competence where I come from, and uh, you know, people don't want to hear people lecturing them on workouts and nutrition or other human performance advice, at least if you haven't worked in their field in some capacity. Uh, And so I, I do a lot of uh, pro bono work with local firefighters, sheriff's department and police department guys. And it's an absolute joy for me to, if I can take a police officer's neck pain to help teach him how to get his neck pain Down tempo, so he can not be in a reactionary state for the next incident he's involved in. That's something that I'm super passionate about. If if we if I can help a firefighter's back pain, you know, become less or eliminated, he's not thinking about his back pain the next time he is running into a burning building. And so um, I do whatever it takes to help empower those guys in the front lines um, from where I'm sitting right now, which you know, you could argue it maybe is the front lines of wellness, but there are other people kicking in the door, running into the building, uh, going into that active shooter situation that are much more in need of not having back pain than me.
0: Yeah, no, I agree 100%. Now, I want to get on one more topic before we go to some closing questions. Um, We mentioned about you know, physiologically being a certain age and, and you know, I'm 46 now. And apart from this current knee thing, I've been feeling, you know, incredible in my 40s, probably much better than I did in my 30s. Um, with this COVID going back to them, for this for a moment, there was this whole thing like, well, if you're the certain age, then you're at a greater risk for, you know, having a, a severe reaction to or immune response to this virus. And I think one area that was missed, and I want to tie this in with functional medicine is the way that we do disease management at the moment with, you know, the pills and potions. I don't think a lot of people realize that, yes, on paper on your birth certificate, it says you're 40, but physiologically, you're actually 60. So what is your kind of take on on aging? And then how how does functional medicine uh, mitigate that versus the make it worse? Excuse me, rather than make it worse.
1: I absolutely refuse to comply with that mindset of, you uh, you know, subscribing to that this is just going to happen to you as you age. I think if you follow the current paradigm, it absolutely will happen to you. You know, as uh, Einstein says, if you keep doing the same thing repeatedly and expect a different outcome, you know that's insanity. And so, um, uh, we there was a gym that I worked at a long time ago. They had a test you would give somebody, and it was your functional age versus your chronological age and it was like a fitness test so i think that can be applied to if you take care of your ecosystem you are not bound to these traditional norms of what aging is i have some civilian clients who are in their 80s who have kept moving who eat correctly and they are super dynamic human beings and i have a front row seat to what they do And I have a front row seat to what other 80 year olds have done where those 80 year olds have sat on the couch. And so I think the time I'm 40, I just turned 47 last week. Um, and I am all about the mindset of anti-aging in terms of what can I do to support myself to slow the tide and not become another statistic of what society says should happen to me. So I believe functional medicine or, you know, integrative medicine or, uh, you know, the mindset of taking care of your ecosystem is a tool to not subscribe to, Oh, this just ha- happens to me. Um, you know, they say you're in danger at a certain age, but it's like, what, why is that the case? It's because people of that, the majority of people at that age, all these things have piled up and maybe COVID-19 is the thing that the straw that broke that camel's back on an already faulty ecosystem um in addition to that um in terms of functional medicine uh the ifm the institute of functional medicine is the best place to find a certified medical practitioner who's like a doctor of functional medicine and the functional medicine coaching academy is the the best place to find a functional medicine health coach and those are A practitioner and a coach are the best people, if anyone's listening to this and wondering where the next steps are to find somebody who understands this mindset, those would be the next steps. And so following that pathway uh, or just subscribing to their social media uh, will start to get people looking through the lens of uh, not being that average 60, 70 or 80 year old.
0: Well, one thing i realised we kind of skipped over was what functional medicine actually is, and you mentioned the word ecosystem. It's something that I kind of realised again as a medic, as someone that you know was was led through the the medical education the last twenty years. But you know, you have to divvy up the body when you are educating, when you are learning, you know, anatomy and physiology, it's the renal system, the cardiovascular system. But I think there's there's a misunderstanding that's not actually how the body works. These are all completely integrated. We're just teaching you chapter by chapter. So it seems to me that the disease management system has kind of almost gone the same way as the the textbook where while well, I only do kidneys, you know, you've got plantar fascia, so we're going to slice and dice your foot and make sure, you know, that we sew all your tendons together, so, you know, and then we'll give you pay meds. You know what I mean? No no mention that maybe that's coming from the base of the spine. So kind of lead us through exactly what functional medicine is and what the difference is between that and some of the, you know, the disease management medicine that we see at the moment.
1: Yes. Functional medicine is a powerful operating system and it looks at the root cause of things and it assesses and treats uh, chronic disease and replaces kind of the outdated allopathic acute care model. And they look at everything from systems biology to, genet- to genetics, to environmental and lifestyle style factors, and, and how those things make disease progress. Um, I don't know if you hit uh, um, link infographics to your podcast, but if people are interested, they can Google functional medicine tree, and it's an infographic, and it shows that the base of the tree is sleep, relaxation, exercise and movement, nutrition, hydration, Stress and resilience, your relationships and networks, trauma, microorganisms, and environmental pollutants. And so if you do not have the base of the tree dialed in and squared away, and if you're not working on all those things I just mentioned, it starts to cause upstream problems in your ecosystem, And so right now in traditional medicine, they break things down separately. You go to a cardiologist or a pulmonary doc or a urologist or an immunologist or uh, somebody who focuses on neurology. So functional medicine combines those things all into one and takes a look at your operating systems and tries to take and does what they call a timeline with each patient. And they interview you and they literally take you back before childhood about how your parents lived and how your parents ate and what diseases or what have you your parents may have had. And they walk that timeline forward and they delve into your deployments or accidents or operational experience. And they start to paint and organize the system of what's happened to you to take a look at maybe what caused some of your clinical imbalances. And they start to look at your different systems and how they may be affected. Um, we lose, use a software system called the Living Matrix, which is a giant questionnaire with algorithms that really look at your, it basically gives a flow chart called the Matrix that shows the, the practitioner where you're out of balance. So if we were to start working with you, we would have you go through this questionnaire and system and possibly get tests from your doctor to look at where you're out of balance. And based on the outcomes of those tests and the outcomes of your matrix, we'd be able to make decisions on what we need to address first with you as a client. So for some people, for most people, it's like some type of nutritional intervention. And as those things start to be repaired, those start to affect those systems in a positive way that you may have gone to that isolated doctor for. And most people will find that as a result of shifting these lifestyle modifications, employing these lifestyle modifications, they can then go to their doctor and say, hey, can you reassess me and see if I even need to be on these medications? And we've routinely, with our nonprofit and our for-profit businesses, had people go down from from 10 or 15 medications down to three, two, one or zero within six months to a year of working with a functional medicine practitioner.
0: That's incredible. Incredible. Now, what about blood work? Do you do you do a lot of that? And and, um... so
1: I am not the person who is an expert on what tests to to take. I would defer to Clarissa Cusin, my partner or Dr. Anthony Beck, from the Balanced Protocol System, who's another good friend of mine. Uh, Dr. Anthony Beck with the Balanced Protocol is an expert on what the latest and greatest tests are. And he will help direct if, if he was somebody you should contact or get in touch with. There's a lot of tests out there, and some of them are better than others. And the landscape of testing is always moving, and they're always coming out with better tests. And so, sometimes tests that the VA or the traditional doctors offer are not the tests that you need. And so uh, Dr. Anthony Beck or docs like him know how to know what tests to tell you to test your digestive health and inflammation and really help you and, and and test for heavy metals to make sure that you're, you're not having lead or heavy metal toxicity, which is something I had Um, and really look at your blood work so that you're not just throwing supplements and potions at a problem based on on some something you read on instagram or watched on instagram because that's happening out there there's a ton of practitioners pushing oh everybody's got gut health issues so you should buy my product and i encourage people to seek out testing that actually looks at what your personalized template is before you just start buying random supplements
0: yeah, are you saying? Are you even suggesting that all human beings aren't exactly the same?
1: Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. The <laughs> word to de- the word to describe that was a term we learned at the Institute of in- Integrative Nutrition, and that is called bioindividuality. And bioindividuality means based on your ethnic background, blood type, sex, likes and dislikes, and life experiences and geographic areas you may have a completely different template than someone else. And as you repair your digestive health and your ecosystem and get rid of heavy metals, some things that might have bothered you previously might not bother you anymore. So I encourage people to get tested and retest and adapt to their new ecosystem as they change it because making blanket statements of you know very regimented uh, statements of this is bad for you and this is good for you is simply not true
0: yeah and I, I think it's just common sense like i said i am not by any means a an academic but to compare um a, you know a, a man or woman from you know, an ab- aboriginal tribe you know living in the middle of australia to an inuit you know that their diets would be exactly the same their responses to you know the earth stimuli would be the same as is insanity so why would we not apply that same concept to our ourselves
1: yeah, so uh, good people to pay attention, like for people to pay attention to for testing are people like Doc Parsley, who I believe has been on your show. Uh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon from New York. Both of them are on the Special Operations Forces Health Initiatives board that I'm on and that we're on. Um also Dr. Anthony Beck. Uh, people like that are really dialed into the the latest and greatest uh, ways to not have you waste money on needless supplements and really get dialed into your ecosystem, I often say, you know, you can walk into Barnes and Noble. Well, not now you can't, but you could have walked into Barnes and Noble and uh, there's a hundred different diet books all written by people who got results from those dietary theories. So you can end up at a loss as to what's right for you. And so uh, me personally, I eat kind of a paleo-esque whole 30 style of diet where I, I don't drink any alcohol. I, I don't really eat a whole lot of gluten or wheat. Uh, I don't eat any processed shu- foods or refined sugars. And that is what helps control my uh, ecosystem to keep my spine and my neck and my injuries from getting worse.
0: Brilliant. I'm glad you, you said that. I uh, I actually just stopped drinking Um, intermittently I've had like a month off and then a few weeks and then a week and and the more I clamp down on it the less I'm wanting to drink which is which is great but touching on the fact that injuries are injuries and some of them are going to be there the same way as Eric Goodman the foundation training founder shows MRIs of his spine which is still completely jacked up but he's mitigated the pain response to it And and I think that's it is I see when I stop drinking that the inflammation in my joints lessens dramatically so the pain goes away so understanding that diet even applies to pain and mental health and some of these things that we don't originally uh, link it with
1: i tried to out exercise my chronic pain for decades and i thought because i was lean with a relative six-pack that i didn't need to pay attention to what i ate and i was do as i you know say not as i do and i'm really uh stoked to be living authentically today and actually doing what I tell my clients to do. And I didn't think I had any, I, I didn't think I had any digestive health issues and it turned out I had, um, leaky gut syndrome. I had uh, IBS. I had uh lots of brain fog and memory loss and I had uh, lead poisoning and uh, I had heavy metals and, uh, from shooting packages that I did with the military and after the military. And so I've had a lot of stuff that has been brought to my attention that I, even recently, that I didn't know existed. And so I'm just glad to be on the path of Kaizen and keeping keeping a beginner's mind and always being open to new information and uh, not thinking I know everything. And uh, collaborating with folks that show up on your podcast and uh, listening to other podcasts and just delving. There's never been a time in history where you have access to streamline information to uplift the uh, human ecosystem. And I encourage people to to just keep a learning mindset.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to touch on one thing quickly and then we'll go to some closing questions. How did you mitigate the lead? I saw Anthony, I mean, sorry, Tony Robbins, that was a big thing with him, but I believe it was hyperbaric chamber treatment that Um, he had.
1: So my personal doctor is Dr. Francis Meredith out of Carolina Total Wellness in Raleigh. And uh, she's a functional medicine doc. And it's also the practice that my partner Clarissa works in. And uh, I'm doing a lead detox where I'm taking digestive, uh, some digestive stuff at night, coupled with uh, some different binding agents, which are uh, made out of clay uh, and spirulina and uh, some different uh, different supplements, Alpha Elite. There's a supplement company called Alpha Elite Performance. And uh, they have a product that I use. It's their Alpha Elite Heavy Metal Detox. And uh, so you take that every night. And I'm doing that along with infrared sauna work. Um, and And just continuing to eat better. And I'm getting ready to be retested In another week, I think it is. It's called the Alpha Elite Metal Detox, Alpha Metal Detox, from Elite Performance, and uh, it's a. The company understands the ethos of what the military and law enforcement and um, firefighter are exposed to in terms of toxic exposures, and for somebody that maybe can't afford to get testing this would be a great supplement for them to employ and just start taking along with uh, trying to eat better to start to detox some of those heavy metals out of their system because it's more than just lead. It's lead, mercury, antimony, and aluminum, and depending on what uh, health product, uh, grooming products people use from hair products and deodorant, there's a lot of different ways to get it into your system and not just operational environment.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, Warrior Wellness Solutions. So tell me about the company or, or the non-profit, non-profit and then you know who can actually come to want to help and, and who can come as a patient.
1: So we are Warrior Wellness Solutions. We're a 501c3 nonprofit program. We're based out of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, most of our work occurs with Folks that have been part of the Marine Corps Wounded Warrior Regiment, which is a Marine Corps unit that has a lot of wounded, ill and injured guys and gals. Uh, We work a lot with referrals from the SOCOM CARA Coalition, which is the US Special Operations Command, uh, injured, wounded and uh, folks that come through that pipeline. Uh, The Army's Warrior Transition Unit, which is an active duty army unit that has guys that are guys and gals that are injured, wounded. sick. Uh, We get referrals from Walter Reed and some of the military hospitals. Um, Usually folks who have to go through some type of vetting process with us to make sure that they're a good candidate uh, because the work we do is very deep work. Uh, We employ a functional medicine health coaching model uh, with deep functional medicine work. Uh, We employ testing and functional medicine doctors when we can, if we have access to them. Uh, We employ foundation training, uh, go to movement, which is a walking and running movement modality. Uh, Functional patterns is another movement modality we employ. And uh, so adaptive exercise, and then we work on sleep hygiene, and we work on mindfulness and yoga modalities. And so most of our Clients come to us by referral from military and and, uh, veteran institutions like the VA. And so sometimes we get referrals from friends of people that we've worked with, which are directly. Uh, I will say that we do have a waiting list um, that is backed up a little bit right now. Uh, So if people reach out to us, bear with us. Um, But we have a facility here in Durham, North Carolina. But we also do remote tele teleconference telehealth modalities uh nationwide.
0: Brilliant. You know, it's interesting. We just got approached by a military contracted mental health facility here in uh, Ocala where where I live, and they've approached my gym to come in and start uh doing you know, movement classes basically and they've asked me to spearhead that and we're not we're not pretending that we're going to do any of what we talked about really it's just putting them through some daylight some movements, some breathing um and that hasn't been finalized yet but i'm looking forward to doing that because it's the similar thing they send a lot of uh men and women i think some of them to go back to their unit and some maybe transition out but uh yeah i mean just just at least having having some uh, relationship with the military community using movement and then hopefully being part of the puzzle to get them back you know on their feet sure.
1: our uh, our mission and is to basically direct it at wounded ill and injured veterans and service members and their families to basically address their nutrition exercise and lifestyle modalities to help get them back in the fight whether that fight is getting back on active duty Whether that fight is transitioning to another uh, role in law enforcement or just uh, the next fight of going back, going to a university class or starting a business. So we're there to support them long term. We basically have a six month program that they're put through with a another six month long term continuum of care. And uh, you can find us at warriorwellnesssolutions.org.
0: Brilliant. And then what about you personally? While we're on that topic, how do people reach out to you?
1: Uh, my my personal website is ElijahSacra.com, uh which is my name, .com. and I have a contracting company called WellnessSolutionsGroup.com, and that's a company that I do contracting work with special operations, law enforcement, and different government agencies on the unit level. And that's not that's a for-profit company, but the Warrior Wellness Solutions is our pro bono work that we do where. Injured veterans and injured uh, warfighters don't pay for that. And it's an all-volunteer nonprofit.
0: Fantastic. All right. Well, then the first of the closing questions. Is there a book that you love to recommend that can be something we've discussed today or something completely different?
1: 100% Atomic Habits by James Clear.
0: Brilliant. I've heard of that many times. Excellent. All right. Then what about a, a movie? Is there a movie you love?
1: Oh, I always love uh, Shawshank Redemption, and just for the quote, you know, either get busy living or get busy dying, or get—I think it was the end of the movie. Um, I recently watched, uh, rewatched Band of Brothers and The Pacific, so I'm a huge fan of those two series.
0: Fantastic. All right, and then what about a documentary? You mentioned the Stem Cell Solution. Are there any others? Yeah, I
1: would say the Stem Cell Solution by Doctor Harry Adelson. Uh, I'm partial to it because my story is featured in the film and he features the story of another reconnaissance marine in there who's a buddy of mine. And it's a very, very powerful look at how stem cells can regenerate and repair your ecosystem and really recharge the life of the the people that get it if they're ready for it.
0: Brilliant. All right. Well, you mentioned a bunch of names, but I'll ask it to you anyway, see if we can narrow it down. Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: Um, can I give you a couple of them or one? You can give me a million if you want. Okay. Uh, Dr. Mark Chang, number one. Uh, Eric Goodman, if you haven't had it, you already had him on. Um, Dr. Harry Adelson. Um, and I think... That's it. Fantastic. Dr. An- Doctor Anthony Beck, if I didn't mention him. Sorry.
0: Excellent. All right. Then the last question before we just make sure everyone knows where they find you and we kind of underline that. What do you do to decompress when you're not coaching and working on your own injuries?
1: Um, well, pre-COVID-19, I do jujitsu jiu- jiu- classes every day. And given my injuries, I had to be careful with that because it could turn into something that isn't decompressing very quickly. So I got to choose my partners wisely and choose the styles of things that I do wisely. So I do jujitsu every day at lunch. Um, and right now during the COVID-19 thing, I'm doing it with a practice dummy, uh, you know, just techniques. Um, I do Headspace app, very minimalist meditation type stuff.
0: Love Headspace.
1: Um, or, or things like Headspace. Uh, you know, I don't want to give them a specific shout out uh, as a particular brand, but things like Headspace. Um, I do audio books. I listen to a lot of Jocko Willinks books um on mindset and leadership. Um I do bird watching like Pat McNamara. Um, and I ride a one-wheel skateboard type thing in my front yard.
0: All right, Elijah, well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I know we ended up hitting two hours in the end, but uh, what you were doing for the veteran community is incredible. And there's such a parallel, not only with first responders, just with civilians in general. Um, so I thank you for being so generous and coming on the podcast.
1: One hundred percent i can't uh I truly appreciate the relatedness and the the parallel stories that I didn't even know about with you and I'm glad to reconnect after having gone gone through those trainings with you and it's just an honor to be here and I appreciate your trust and whoever listen the trust of whoever listens to this and I just encourage uh everyone to listen to more of your podcasts and and uh, try to be a champion in your own environments for health because whatever unit you're in or whatever family or peer group you're in, if you are trying to be the healthiest person out there and you're trying to be the voice of health, you're gonna raise up everyone around you and create a ripple effect in your community that'll spread nationwide and, and worldwide.